Good evening. You're listening to Team Connect on WDIY 88.1 FM, and I'm your host, Prithisha Kathare. As many of you may know, my intention with Connect is to open discussions about community and global challenges with peers and professionals to prompt inquiry, interest, and reflection. And given the circumstances, it's impossible not to talk about the ramifications of the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, there are many dimensions into which we could dive, and on my last segment we shed light on the interesting pollution and climate change trends that have been developing over the last eight months. But today, I want to talk about an aspect of life that almost all of us can directly relate to. And that is none other than the unprecedented dynamic of remote education and collaboration we have been experiencing, and in some opinions, surviving through. As a high school senior, I'll be the first one to admit the difficulty in adapting to taking seven online classes while simultaneously working on college applications. But I've also noticed enrichment in some aspects of my non-academic and academic life. And to get a better picture of how students, particularly those in Pennsylvania, are feeling under these new conditions, I asked peers to send in recordings responding to the following Please discuss your perspective on the present state or future prospects of virtual learning and collaboration. How can we enhance what are limitations and what are the effects of productivity and quality of learning currently? And here's what they said. Many people assume that there's less quality of learning in virtual learning because of less active instruction, but for me, it's the opposite. I prefer studying notes myself rather than watching a teacher lecture because I can spend more time on the topics I don't understand as much. Also, schedules are less rigid, so I have more time to prioritize my activities. I have more time to complete my assignments. I can modify my sleep schedule depending on when my classes are. I have more time for other activities, and overall, I'm more relaxed. Virtual learning has done wonders for my productivity. As a high school senior, I'm very grateful to have experienced three years of traditional school before COVID-19, which I can then use to compare with the electronic and e-learning systems we're using now. Because, you know, at this point, it's a bit difficult for anyone to predict how much longer we'll be needing them or whether or not graduating classes will go through four years of e-learning before we start trickling back into schools. But, you know, first and foremost, I think it's really important to remember that This whole process is new not only for students, but also for teachers and administrators. So it's really important, not only in education, but in general during this time, to remember to be flexible, patient, and lenient. Because, of course, teachers will handle things differently, which I think is super interesting because it's really cool to see how each teacher structures their classes differently from, you know, quiz formats to collaborative work, live lectures. Each educator has a different approach and class organization. And of course, this can become a bit daunting for students from time to time to keep track of all of it. But overall, I've found it manageable. And of course, different classes are always going to be structured differently. Another aspect of the largest change, perhaps, in this new shift to online learning is the loss of direct classroom interaction, which is always something super important in education. So losing it was something I personally struggled with, and it's something very difficult to replicate. However, the use of live conference classes and lectures and having those interactions through the screen is something that is kind of like the next best thing and something I feel like a lot of teachers are taking advantage of and something I also appreciate as a student personally.
In regards to the future of distant learning, personally, I've enjoyed a pretty good academic balance, like in terms of quizzes to projects, collaborative works, Google Meets, Zoom, stuff like that. But I'd like to see more progression towards extracurriculars. Of course, it makes sense that now we're trying out this new system of having kids either hybrid or online and teaching them through the screen. Of course, it's important to establish that first, make sure classes are running, grades are happening, stuff like that. But I think once we use the system more and more and once we become more familiar with it, it would be interesting to shift our attention over to how can we revive these clubs and extracurriculars into an online platform, which is something that I'm sure a lot of people are thinking about right now and something that I'm sure will be pursued in the near future. The effects of the COVID-19 pandemic have been complicated, to say the least. Current school closures have added to the time I've spent at home during the summer months, and I've been without explicit face-to-face instruction from teachers for half a year. Meanwhile, my teachers are scrambling to adapt all their content to online platforms, and my parents are juggling work responsibilities and still have to care for me and my siblings. Overall, it's been pretty difficult, but we're adjusting as a group, and we all have to learn to adjust together. Virtual learning has brought a lot of challenges. One of these challenges is the ability to stay motivated. Oftentimes, school can seem optional because there's no one really forcing you to turn in assignments. It's just you and your ability to keep pushing through any obstacles that come in your way. Also, learning through a screen can be distant and lonely at times because you don't have the same ability to create personal relationships with teachers or classmates. It can feel mundane too, since it's literally the same thing every single day. I feel like my quality of education has gone down as well because of the difficulty of learning lessons across a computer and teachers' difficulties adapting to the new online formatting. Last, a lot of the fun has been taken out of extracurriculars since they now lack the social aspect that they once had. Instead of serving as a place to socialize with friends and meet new people, many club meetings have turned into second lectures of sorts. Also, extracurriculars lack a lot of the opportunities they once had, such as in-person state competitions and the EPC tournament in the case for debate. This has caused the formatting and the things that we do in these clubs to change drastically. Also, social events like school dances, homecoming, and football games have either been completely cancelled or drastically changed. It can be really hard to focus in school when there isn't that social aspect and it feels like there's almost nothing to look forward to. So virtual learning has drastically changed everyone's school and social lives in many different ways. Talking about some of the positive and negative aspects that I've personally observed during virtual learning, starting off with one of the main negative aspects is that I'm personally having some trouble staying focused on the task at hand during a specific period at the time of day, because it's really easy for me to think, oh, it's okay if I miss, you know, a small portion of 
this period's class to catch up on some work that I missed for next period's class. But the problem becomes that this kind of becomes a repetitious cycle. And by the end of the week, you're left with a little more work than you'd want to. And I think that's a, a similar problem that my, uh, my friends have experienced as well. So I think being more strict as to uh, maybe having more cams on would actually be helpful for students to make sure that they're doing only the task that they're supposed to be doing during a specific class period. But going on to some of the more positive aspects, the primary positive effect that I've seen because of virtual learning is a lot more people are inclined to be able to share their ideas and speak in front of the class with ease. Because I know that during the school year, there would be a lot of students who struggle to bring up the courage to speak and explain a specific idea or ask questions um, in front of the entire class, because it can be a really scary thing. And I think that a virtual learning environment has really fostered an environment that pushes them to do so. And I think one of the other primary positive effects of virtual learning would be more student interaction with the teacher in that students are now able to provide more feedback about their learning experiences and what they think could be done better so that they could uh, make sure that they're learning the same amount of material and understanding it just as well as if they were in person with the teacher. And I think that's a really important uh, part of our e-learning environment. And one of the final very helpful things that I've, that I've seen this year is the new opportunities in clubs in that there's a lot better scheduled meets where a lot more people are showing up to those meetings. And also during the meets themselves, I think it's a lot easier to effectively organize into their specific groups. And if you're talking collectively, I think it's a, a lot smoother for a transition there. And I also think it's a lot easier to share ideas because not everyone wants to, not everyone is talking towards a specific person at once, for example, and when it's more orderly where one person is talking like on the Zoom call or on a Google Meet at a time, people will get more of like a concrete understanding without having an interference from someone else. And I think that has really fostered some of a bond between club members and pushed them to really move forward exploring new ideas. Thank you. Virtual learning has been both a blessing and a curse. It's given me the freedom to work on assignments at my own pace. However, it also prevents me from learning valuable course content because there's only so much teaching that can be done through a video call. As far as the future of virtual learning goes, I hope to see less of an emphasis on independent assignments and more focus on group discussions or lectures. Thus far in this segment, we focused on student opinions regarding the challenges and opportunities that they see as being on the receiving end of our new mode of distant education. However, it's equally interesting to talk about the role of the educator and the experiences of educators around the nation and around the world, not only regarding how they feel toward teaching through virtual settings, but also some other conferences and seminar work as well as research opportunities they, they engage in. And perhaps the picture that is painted and the learnings that we can take away are more optimistic. So I'd like to bring in a unique guest whose experiences in virtual settings I have actually been privy to as we've been working not 10 feet from each other in the same house. So I want to welcome my father, Dr. Myrish Kathare, who is professor of chemical engineering and chairman of the department at Lehigh University. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Pratisha. Thanks for the kind introduction. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I guess my first question is, I have observed you adapting to teaching online. 
getting new tools like iPads and headphones and wide view cameras. In your opinion, what are some things that you've learned and perhaps can carry into the future even when education returns to normal? So I guess the the experience beginning with remote education in the beginning was more challenging because we had to learn new technology, we had to figure out what are the right devices to use, how to get to see our students in two dimensions versus three dimensions on a screen. But once we went over the hurdles, I think you at least I realized personally how many more things we can do. So I'll give you an example. If you have to teach a, a class with computer simulation models, in a traditional class, you would have to walk around the class, look at each screen, help the students to understand the nuances of the computer program. On a Zoom session, all I have to do is ask a student to share their screen, and instantly I see exactly every click and move that the student is making on the computer program, the code that they're writing, the simulation results. I can interactively teach the student what are things which can be improved. So this is just one of many examples where I think the remote mode has brought technology more to the the benefit of the educator and the student. And I can go on and on. Of course, there are many other examples, such as team projects. How do you break students up into teams? In a traditional classroom, you'd have to move them around in the classroom to different physical locations. In a Zoom setting, you essentially break them up in virtual breakout rooms and so on. I think great positives which will carry through in the future. And it's obviously not going to be a one or nothing, but if there are some virtual settings that we can incorporate to in-person lectures, I think that would be a cool dynamic to explore. But something else that I wanted to talk about was really interesting, and it happened near the beginning of this period since March that we've gone virtual, was that you engaged in a research collaboration. And could you talk a little bit about that? Because that seemed very dynamic and engaging, and I thought it was a positive experience from what I saw. So it was a very interesting experience. So there was a workshop organized by the National Institute of Health in Washington, D.C., and because of COVID, it went remote. And so we ended up doing the workshop on Zoom sessions. And I was very skeptical of what I would get out of a Zoom session or a Zoom workshop. But it turned out that it provided me and the other participants with very unique opportunities to form teams and to share ideas very quickly, very rapidly in breakout rooms compared to moving around in tables going for lunches and dinners where you normally exchange these ideas. The upshot of all of that was um, with the help of an excellent external facilitator, which was actually a professional company that organized the, the online tools, we were able to very quickly form approximately nine different research teams. And as an example, the team that I was able to form with other colleagues was from four other universities from Emory, Georgia Tech, from University of Pittsburgh, from Thomas Jefferson University, and the University of Idaho in collaboration with Lehigh University. For me to have established that kind of collaboration in an actual workshop or even by calling people and asking them to be on a team would be extremely difficult. But in a virtual environment, it was absolutely seamless. People were sharing ideas on virtual notepads, on virtual blackboards or posting boards. 
which were immediately collected together by the facilitator mm -hmm. and that allowed people to match their interests together very quickly. Mm -hmm. So over a period of three days of the workshop, nine teams were formed. Each team submitted a four-page white paper <laughs> on a very complex research theme in nine different areas. We also submitted something in our area of interest and ultimately we got that project yeah. funded. Yep. And so if anything else, I think this was a huge positive which I, I really cannot imagine I could have pulled off without having the advantage of uh, remote conferencing. Yeah, and this is something, you know, we overlook in professional settings, especially when they involve collaborators from around the nation and around the world. I do think organizing something remotely can lead to much more dynamic and perhaps more organized discussions that can precipitate some innovation and ideas perhaps much quicker than they would be in person. And I guess the last thing that we can talk about is also the idea of conferences. I know as the chairman, you are responsible for organizing chemical engineering lectures that perhaps are not only broadcasted to the university, but also on national or global platforms. So can you talk about perhaps any of that that's been arranged during this time? So I can give you two examples. One is I myself gave a seminar and this seminar was a kind of a plenary lecture, a keynote lecture. And this was in China. And normally this would involve a long travel to go to China. Right, right. And it turned out that uh, because of the online platform, I was able to do that without a major disruption in any of the different other tasks that mm -hmm. I have to do. So that's just one example of giving seminars from far away and getting the message across without actually traveling. The reverse is also true. We have been able to invite speakers from around the nation to give seminars in our department in a virtual format. And the acceptance of our invitations has been much higher mm. than if we had to host sure. them live. Because it is only a matter of them finding out a time slot of two to three hours when they can give the seminar, meet a few of our faculty, as opposed to finding out a schedule of two days mm -hmm. to fly from California, from South Carolina, from Atlanta, etc., to come here to the Lehigh Valley, give a seminar, spend time with faculty, with lunches, dinners, and so on. So I do not deny the fact that, of course, we have lost the social context of personal interactions, but the efficiency of work has grown dramatically. A faculty member in another institution can be giving a lecture in their class in the morning and in the afternoon that person can be giving a seminar at right. Lehigh without having to miss that lecture. But ultimately going forward, I guess, you know, the question that we can end with is what do you see as being perhaps not an optimal balance at this point that you would know, but what do you think could be future applications of some of the experiences you've had, but also maintaining the importance of social context that you mentioned? So it's hard to predict as much as we can predict into the future. Some tools are going to be here to stay. For example, if I'm traveling for a conference in the pre-COVID years, I would ask a teaching assistant uh, to cover the class which I would be missing. Now I don't have to think twice. I can be in California in a conference or giving a seminar at another university and I could still connect back to my class for an hour to give mm -hmm. a lecture and not disrupt the class schedule. Right. So these are just some of the small things that I think will carry through. 
The other thing is saving travel time on mundane and routine matters. Mm. When, of course, it's a major issue, major decision making about getting new contracts or research projects, that's one thing. But for routine matters, you could just do it remotely. And with as much efficiency, right. as much transfer of information, and as much richness in the discussion. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kathari, aka Dad. Hmm. This was really insightful. And I think, you know, looking at this experience, perhaps with younger students, there is some balance that can try to strike in the future. Obviously, the experience for younger students with regard to engaging with the screen is very different from what someone in a professional sphere that's constantly engaging with people from around the world would have to say about it. So I think highlighting both perspectives can lead us to some learnings and discovery for the future. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation. <laughs> when we come back, We'll be talking with Secretary of Education Noe Ortega about how education has changed during the COVID pandemic. We'll be right back. For program support on WDIY, we thank the Pocono Cheesecake Factory, now offering curbside pickup of a variety of cheesecake, cookies, pastries, and gourmet treats. For 35 years, helping schools, clubs, and other nonprofit organizations throughout the Lehigh Valley and Northeast Pennsylvania achieve their fundraising goals. The Pocono Cheesecake Factory, since 1985, love at first bite. For more information, PoconoCheesecake.com. Galactic Travels brings you hour-long soundscapes of electronic, ambient, and space music. That's Thursday night at 11, right here on WDIY Allentown. Lehigh Valley Public Radio, 88.1 FM and WDIY.org. Many choices, real voices. You're listening to Team Connect on WDIY 88.1 FM, and I'm your host, Prathisha Kathare. Today we'll be talking with Secretary of Education Noe Ortega about how education has changed during the COVID pandemic and what lessons we can learn from this new format of virtual and distant learning. Mr. Noe Ortega, thank you so much for joining us. Prathisha, this is an absolute pleasure to join you today. So I guess we want to start off with, can you introduce or talk about your background to our listeners and how did you arrive at being our state secretary of education? Sure, absolutely. So I'll start by just saying there is no roadmap to becoming secretary of education. In fact, until I landed the position, I really didn't know what it took to get there in any ways. But I'm primarily an educator at large. I did begin my career as an early childhood educator, particularly working with toddlers in kindergarten overseas in Japan for about seven or eight years. When I completed that, I came back into the U.S. and worked primarily in the area of higher education, particularly in outreach, where you're sort of encouraging folks to go and pursue a post-secondary opportunity. 
I'm originally from Texas, more specifically South Texas. So my goal in the work was to recruit more historically underrepresented students to go into colleges and universities. And this is primarily looking at Latinx populations that were in South Texas. And that was kind of my entry point into the post-secondary education world. I spent some time doing work at the University of Michigan before coming here and mostly at a research center where we were looking at issues of access around diversity, equity, and inclusion for underserved populations. So in the 10 years that I was there, I did a lot of work in that particular area, which kind of picked up on the things that I did in Texas, along with beginning to reexamine the outcomes of higher education. Particularly, I worked at at a center that was committed to shedding light on the public good outcomes. These are sort of the civic outcomes that don't get talked about very often, right? Often we talk about sort of the earning potential, the social mobility, but these are the ways that folks through educational attainment become good participants in society and citizens of sort of the democracy. And so we put a lot of emphasis on that energy. Those are the things that brought me to Pennsylvania. I was recruited here by my predecessor, Secretary Rivera, to serve as his commissioner for higher education. And then the work that I did there eventually put me into this role that I'm in today as the acting secretary for Pennsylvania. So those are the steps. And if you were to ask the other 50 people who serve, hold the same role in other states, they would probably tell you a very different story of how they got there. I'd like to say that basically it was my commitment to ensuring that all folks have access to educational opportunities and that we're equitable about that, that really led to me being able to assume this position under the administration. Wow. I actually was reading about some of your research at University of Michigan because I was going to try to write an intro for you, but based on how extensive it was, I said, oh, he can tell us about that. I guess now talking about this unprecedented education dynamic that we're in because of the pandemic, can you talk about what some of your responsibilities are as they pertain to adapting education during this time? Sure, sure. And, you know, I think a lot of the work that we've been doing since March has really been dedicated to ensuring the health and safety of students, families, communities, educators, everyone that revolves and relies on education or the provision of education as well. And so this has really been trying to reconcile what's happening with the pandemic with the need for ongoing and continuous learning of students, right? And it's a real challenge. I would be lying if I didn't say that it's been taxing for all folks, from us at the state education agency to educators, but I think in particular students as well. Many folks who are seeing the need to have to pivot in the way that we learn from in-person, which many of us are accustomed to, to remote and virtual learning, which is not the same, and many folks are trying to make the best of it, but, you know, it's been a, a real challenge, and to do it while we're having to tend to the safety of all folks around us, right, including the people who surround the learner. So there are support systems, guardians, parents, families, extended family that interact with any young learner who's engaging in education. And so those are all elements that now I think educators need to be more mindful of. And then, Patricia, I think also it's important to shed light on what we've been trying to do in terms of resources for folks Mm -hmm. around mental health and well-being which has become a real concern at the moment, particularly as we enter almost month number nine of the pandemic. And it's become really challenging. And I imagine a number of the folks who tune into your program and maybe even your close circle of friends, you talk about this topic quite a bit because it's been really taxing for folks. 
Absolutely. And that is one of the things that we wanted to talk about is it's very interesting to see, you know, social media trends where a lot of students are voicing these very candid concerns about their mental health and they make videos and that kind of poke fun at it. But it does point to a very serious issue that many students are dealing with. And so I guess on a state level, how are schools around the state dealing with staying in tune with the mental health of their students? Is there support for families who are struggling with these issues or... Absolutely. And so from the onset, members of our team began to develop resources, both in partnership with school districts, but many of them were also developed in partnership with students who were being affected by the pandemic, right? And, and I want to put a caveat on that particular item because it's not just the pandemic. It's all the societal events going on at the same time. There's a tremendous amount of civil unrest that we've experienced during the pandemic that have made things even more complicated and have really layered on additional things that are affecting young learners effectively. But our website on education.pa.gov has some resources that are available that the state has either compiled or has linked to in other websites, right? The Department of Health puts out a lot of resources around mental health and well-being as well. And this does not even account for the numerous other resources that exist out there that are being put together by school districts. We're trying to be better about taking fragmented resources, which are all really great, and trying to compile them in a way that they're a little bit more central. And that's been a little bit challenging, right? It's hard to really keep a sense of that. And it's difficult as well to be able to just take anything without really vetting it to whether or not it actually is serving the user well, right? And so the state is not in the business of, of being that conduit for resources, but whenever things are elevated to us, we certainly do our best to promulgate them out to the public, whether it's through social media or on our website as well. People are talking quite frequently, right? And I think for me, the message has always been to the people who work closest with me, to the educators and students that I interact with on a regular basis, that it really begins with tending to yourself first and then figuring out how you could be a resource or an asset to other people as well, right? One of the things that I think is really important, even when we're having to sort of quarantine, isolate, and in some cases even stay at home and right in the most restrictive environment, that we find a way to just do outreach to folks, mm -hmm. check in on people at a frequency that maybe you wouldn't normally check in, and then remind people that it's okay to feel the way that you do and to experience things the way that you do, and that's absolutely normal. And I think the more that we begin to interact with each other in that way, I think that's the best resource that's out there, right? Relying on folks. And I guess to follow up on what trends that we've really been looking at during, you know, this eight-month time period that we've been trying to adapt as best as we can to the conditions, what do you believe have been perhaps the most major or prominent impacts and trends with regard to educational quality and access? Or is there a way that you receive this feedback and perhaps what is the most important feedback you've been getting and the response on a state level to that? Yeah, you know, a couple of things that I think have emerged, I think to me, the way, because of where we're situated in the state, you know, we pay a lot of attention to organizational level things that are happening in the system. I'll give you an example of that. So whether or not schools are holding, let's say, in-person instruction, a hybrid version, or whether they're in remote, and when they are remote, you know, what are the efforts that are being put in place because we have invested in sort of building an infrastructure to create better access for students. Mm -hmm. Like, what does that look like? You know, are they distributing 
equipment and things like that. And then even more so, are there partnerships that are developing between communities and schools and then other areas, like other media outlets, for example? So we've got a lot of partnerships with EBS and other places where we're taking learning into other platforms that folks can begin to interact with. So for us, we pay attention to that particular movement. It's a concern that we know that the one thing that's the most inequitable, I guess is the best way to describe it in this whole process, is really the way that people are able to access learning, which we're really trying to address, because it doesn't really come down to whether or not you have the technology, right, or the bandwidth. It also comes down to whether or not you find yourself in a space that's safe and conducive to learn. And that's something that even the biggest access in terms of broadband, whether we expand bandwidth and provide people with the equipment, you cannot guarantee that folks are in a place that's safe and conducive for learning. Circumstances are very different. And I think that's where I would identify areas where we're really needing to partner with community groups other organizations that are not necessarily the school who have connections into communities who can make sure that that's not overlooked by the state education agency. And in some cases, we don't just play the role of maintaining the quality of education. We try to also seek out partnerships in other agencies where we could move to address those things. The food insecurity aspects, number of things that are that people are being impacted from the economic sort of changes that have been occurring because of the pandemic. All those things, I think, also factor into the quality of the education that you're receiving as well. And of course, we can imagine that with all these changing conditions and trying to build partnerships, that there probably is some, you know, if we think infrastructurally or budgetary wise, there probably are some shifts. When I was jotting some notes down in my head, it seems like we would kind of be focusing more on promoting online tool subscriptions or improving the sanitation of schools and perhaps some costs that we would see going down is especially printing and paper costs, physical materials, transportation. So on a larger scale, do you see a difference in how schools have been spending? And if so, if savings exist, where are they being used? Or if there's a need for more spending, perhaps where are these extra resources coming from and where are they being dedicated primarily during this time? Sure. You know, and I think that's one of the things where as the information continues to come into the State Department, right, as people begin to file more reports to us in the General Assembly around expenditures and revenues, I think this picture will become a lot clearer. But I think what's important to note is that the pivot, particularly for most school districts that were not already investing in sort of the infrastructure to move towards a remote in some cases, that means a virtual platform. Like there was a lot of, of resources that had to be expended to get there, right? And so even at the state level, when these decisions were being made, let's say we forego a particular initiative or program, and then we seek flexibility to be able to redistribute those funds, we do in the way that allows schools to build the capacity, right? So immediately, the moment that resources are freed up, they go to ensuring some of these things, right? And this includes professional development for teachers, educators. In many cases, what we try not to do as well is, you know, people are still working in the schools. We don't want to put schools in a situation where they're further creating challenges, particularly economic challenges to their employees. And so all that needs to also continue in some way, right? So they're pivoting in that way as well. So I don't think, and I say this without having seen all the information, 
I don't anticipate a great deal of savings, right? I think most of what we're seeing is people having to offset the losses. So the request that we're getting on a regular basis is how much of a shortfall our schools have experienced, right? And I, I know that a lot of the conversation that I've sort of shared so far kind of implies that K through 12 or early childhood to 12 spin. There's also a post-secondary world that falls under our purview. And as you can imagine, when you close things like dorm rooms down in the spring of last year and people then are asked to go home and not return back to the campuses, those were losses that were being incurred by our institutions all the time. And those are continuing to increase in terms of the reports and requests that we're getting. So it's really created a real need for resources to help with the pivot, right? So just wanted to sort of give you that big yeah. picture. And I think as we learn more, it'll begin to make some sense. So we've been talking to Secretary of Education, Noe Ortega. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about how we've been adapting to these new circumstances and perhaps what are the lessons learned and how is the COVID-19 pandemic going to impact education for the future? We'll be right back. Do you have a car that you're trading in? How about an old truck or boat that's taking up space? Let WDIY help you get rid of unwanted vehicles and turn them into financial support for the station. It's a simple and easy process. We handle all the towing, title, and transfer, and it may be tax deductible. Turn your vehicle into the programs you love. To learn more, visit WDIY.org or call 610-694-8100, extension 7. Celtic Fair, celebration of Celtic music and culture from its roots in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Brittany, and Galicia to its branches in Australia, Cape Breton, Canada, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley. Music, interviews, and a weekly culture calendar every Thursday from 7 to 9 here on WDIY. Back. This is Prithisha Kathare from Teen Connect on WDIY. We've been talking to Secretary of Education Noe Ortega about education during the COVID-19 pandemic. So we talked before about some of the trends we've been noticing and infrastructurally how we've been adapting education. But now if we project ourselves a little more into the future, I think one of the interesting things that I've especially noticed as a high school student is even before the pandemic, there was a noticeable investment in online resources. So we had a lot of teachers who were using video conference tools already before we were transitioned to this virtual format. So I guess my question is, how have these initiatives changed or been supported? And what changes may persist even beyond the pandemic? And I think you raised a really important point. We were already seeing movements by a number of school districts to understand the importance of integrating learning platforms that are different from in-person, not for the purpose of replacement, but for the purpose of enhancement, right? Mm -hmm. People were already thinking about how they could find ways to more meaningfully engage students in these kind of experiences and activities. And I think if anything, the pandemic really served as a catalyst to sort of expedite that in some ways. 
And it also won us new supporters, right? Not every educator has been very quick to embrace technology. Mm -hmm. I'm imagining your experience sometimes that uh, (laughs) you kind of see there. You know the difference between a power user of technology and someone who's just trying to make the best of something (laughs) as they try to, like, move forward. So it's for some folks, it's a scary thing, right? But everyone had to do it because of the pandemic, and everyone continues to do it. And frankly, I think they're getting better at it. They're beginning to understand how it can function, how it can enhance. I'm learning things because we use this platforms, the, the various platforms all the time that I never understood. And there are very meaningful ways to begin to engage folks. I think there are limitations that we haven't figured out, particularly in how you try to tap in into some of the emotional learning aspects of a lot of the tools. And those are a little bit more challenging, but I think people are getting a lot better. And I think as we grow increasingly comfortable, we're gonna see the potential. I do think that we need to figure out ways to push the field of education forward to understand how these tools are going to add value, how are they going to be able to create engagement across schools, across states, you know, across borders in ways that are really going to enhance the experience, right? For me, I approach a lot of my work from the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think what we've seen, particularly in, in colleges and universities, Schools have become more accessible, right? When you move beyond the brick-and-mortar format and you begin to create another platform that folks can can engage in, you're going to see a new audience that feels like there's a way for them to be a part of it, right? Particularly if they don't see themselves reflected in the composition of the school. By that, I mean Mm -hmm. student makeup, the composition of faculty. We have a problem with regards to educators of color in Pennsylvania, as a number of other states. And that, in some ways, keeps folks from, in some cases, pursuing a post-secondary opportunity or engaging in certain spaces where they feel it's not very welcoming to them in particular, right? And this doesn't end with race and ethnicity. I think this spans across a number of other areas where we need to do better to improve access. And I think these platforms kind of create a really interesting equity space that I don't think we fully have begun to understand or tap into well. And I personally, as an educator, I really am inspired and motivated to try to figure out how we're going to be able to navigate the equity and inclusiveness of our work. Absolutely. And that is a fantastic point to bring up in terms of the diversity that we see in instruction through an online format, always relying on a bunch of different resources. And so what I've seen, you know, in my education and of those around me is that it's really not limited to our classroom and the 15 mm-hmm. students that we have in there. It really is spanning and really being able to tap into different online communities. So that is a very interesting point. In terms of any other opportunities that you see or benefits that we've been learning or that you think might arise from our continuing engagement in distant or virtual collaborative settings, perhaps any other avenues that you see for opportunities? Sure. I think the one area, like I feel oftentimes we've gotten really good at figuring out how you could have learning go beyond the classroom and teachers often, not to the liking of students, have figured out how to allow homework to be that continuation of the things that you learned in classroom when you Mm -hmm. apply. So there's that continued piece, right? I think one area where where I would like to see something very similar is in the area of services that meet other needs of students, right? That go beyond the curricular aspects of pedagogy in the classroom. These are things, like we mentioned before, around mental health, well-being, 
other things that tap into some of that development that young folks would need as well. And I think technology might be a way into that, right, in a way that it's continuous. And I think as as people begin to experiment with that a little bit more, they're going to be able to find ways where there's a continuous interact with something in a way where they're also growing emotionally and with their mental health as well. And I think that's another opportunity that because people had to figure out a way to address those concerns during the pandemic, it's going to teach us really valuable lessons of what the next century is going to look like, which is to me fascinating, right? Like often I had the privilege to have a career that spanned the tail end of one century where progress was at its peak to the beginning of a new century where Progress is technically at, at its infancy, right? So what we're discovering right now is going to set the tone for what folks like you and I will be experiencing at the end of this century, which is really interesting because now we're beginning to nudge technology into areas where we have identified, and unfortunately it's because the pandemic was the catalyst, right. that there's a need to explore in the space. And, and that, to me, is, is sort of the silver lining of what essentially has been eight months of like real gloominess, right? That we've been focusing on with regards to the pandemic. So I think that's another opportunity for sure. It's obviously a very unique situation that we're in. And so, like you said, even though we are kind of in this mentality, we were just hoping to get over it. There is a lot of opportunity for learning and discovery just because of how avant-garde and how strange the conditions are. I wanted to ask about some trends, in terms of curriculum changes, I know last year, the end of the school year was kind of pushed to this online format. There were changes in national curriculum in terms of, you know, AP testing was changed, in terms of what content it covered. Do you believe that the format that we're working with now, that there is a need to, or have there been any state curriculum changes given the online formats in terms of in elementary school, we have like the... I'm not sure what they're called anymore. They used to be called PSSAs, but, you know, the the statewide (laughs) testing, have there been any changes with that or any projections to change that? You know, the issue of curriculum, because we're in the Commonwealth, is really an issue of local control, right? School districts Mm -hmm. really have the biggest influence on what the curriculum is going to look like. You know, the state does play a role in terms of assessments or the set of assessments. Currently, we still have the same sort of assessment aspects, except we're beginning to sort of rethink how to use them for such things as graduation requirements, et cetera. Mm. But I do think we're beginning to sort of push on that particular space as well, right? I, if I could be completely honest, I think we need to revisit our relationship with assessments and the importance mm-hmm. that we pay to them and then really ask ourselves the questions of what we want to begin to assess, right? And one of the things that I've been primarily focused on in, I would say, largely the last decade of my career has been really kind of tapping into some of the outcomes that don't always get the same level of play as general education requirements in a Mm -hmm. curriculum, right, which are super important. But I I really do think that when you think about civic engagement, volunteerism, Mm -hmm. things like altruism, like those things are really important outcomes that we need to figure out how do we assess whether or not somebody's leaving our K-12 systems with those kinds of, of insights, skills, and competencies, right? I get that there's supposed to be a lot of emphasis on the soft learning skills, but there's a whole other aspect of expectations that we have of members of society on how you engage with one another, right? How you interact with democracy, voting. If anything, we've been taught recently 
And I hope that many people who are tuning in today paid attention to what we saw in terms of political activity, what we saw around mobilization, what we've seen in terms of young folks active around issues that they care about, whether it's campus safety because there was a terrible tragedy or event on their campus, or simply caring about what's happening with folks of color, right? You know, as a person of color myself, I think those are really things that I would like to begin for folks to understand that education cultivates, right? It gives you a sense of social justice to understand how you make sense of the events that you're experiencing and observing around the world. And I think those are things that we need to ask ourselves, how are those going to be components, competencies in the curriculum of young learners and not to be afraid to engage with them, right? Like classrooms are spaces where we should have deliberative dialogues Mm -hmm. in good productive ways, because that's going to be helpful in how we're shaped our thinking into the future. So I'd like to see us to begin to question those things. And I think the pandemic has really elevated why it's important, why it's important for us to think about the other, right? A lot of the activities that we're being asked to do, like face coverings, for example, social distancing, are less about what they mean to us, but more about what it means to others, and then who we can protect because we're engaged in those activities. And I think observing that as young people, it's a good opportunity to help them make sense of why we do that. Yeah, and it's so interesting while you were talking in terms of getting especially younger kids engaged with perhaps the community outside their classroom. On a previous segment of this show, I actually talked to a school teacher and she and I did this program where we had like a pen pal exchange between kids in America and kids in Kenya. So we did like video exchanges for them to kind of see how education is happening outside of the microcosm of their local classroom. So that's very interesting in terms of realizing the need to incorporate some of that education and extension to kind of promoting an awareness of outside communities. So, And it makes learning fun, right? It like does. It, really, it makes <laughs> you feel as if, it, it makes you first of all understand that we're not just an individual stuck within where we were, you know, where we live and what we have, what we have and do has implications on the world, but also what other folks do have implications on us as well. And it's just a really interesting exchange. And frankly, you begin to really understand that there's not a whole lot of difference, right? Mm -hmm. And I think right now we've been caught in an area where we're so focused on what makes us different from someone else. And then we begin to internalize those sometimes in, mm-hmm. in wrong ways. And I think this gives us a chance to understand that there's so many similarities. You know, people struggle. People have the same circumstances. And people care. They care about many of the same things. And I feel like that another level of aspect, it just needs to be incorporated into learning as early as possible. Mm-hmm. I'm 100% in agreement. In fact, you know, one of my aspirations is to do more educational outreach and connectivity in my professional career. So I'm really thrilled that we got to talk about this. So I guess the final question to close out our segment is a message for perhaps all of the students and teachers who are listening about perhaps how we can all stay engaged or how we can push forward. This is something that we'll be continuing to deal with for months to come, but what is the silver lining that we can take away or what is something that you think is really important to look forward to? I think I want to begin by just acknowledging to everyone that what you're feeling in terms of challenges and sort of the heaviness of the things going on is real. And it's something that everybody's experiencing. But we are very resilient as individuals. There's a lot of folks 
that understand what needs to be done as we navigate this and move forward. As a person who has the privilege of leading the Department of Education in Pennsylvania, this is what I advocate for all the time, a return to normalcy in a way that's better. I, I don't want to be very quick to come back to normal circumstances when the opportunities to be, create changes that are beneficial to all are there. Everything we talked about today is both about acknowledging what we're observing, but also being really optimistic about how the future is going to change and things are going to get better and we are going to sort of move beyond this. And I think I want to encourage folks to keep being there for one another, keep interacting with folks, keep encouraging people to understand that we're going to come out better from the things that we're experiencing. And then we're going to be positioned to really be advocates on why it's important for us to not erase the lessons that we learned during the mm -hmm. pandemic and how we can use them to inform the things that we do moving forward. So I'd like to sort of turn that into an opportunity to, to turn this into something that's going to be meaningful for society in years to come. I know we could talk about education for hours, but thank you for that message. I think that will really resonate and stick with our listeners. To close out our segment, thank you for tuning in. I'm Prithisha Kathari from Teen Connect, and today we were able to talk to Secretary of Education Noe Ortega about education during the COVID-19 pandemic and how we can look to the future. So thank you so much. Thank you, Prithisha. I really appreciate it.